turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, we'll be looking at the second half of the chapter this morning, beginning at verse 15. All right, again, I'd like to read part of this for us as we begin. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for this rich promise that where two or three gather in your name, you are in our midst. And we certainly have that many this morning. And so, Father, as we talk about your word today and as we look at what it means, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak to each of us? This area of forgiveness is so important that we understand it, not only so that we might be forgiven, but so that we could forgive one another and be reconciled and restored in our relationships. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by doing a little bit of review. Last week, when we started in chapter 18, we said that this chapter is about kingdom values. It's about Jesus teaching the disciples what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so what we saw is that the values of the kingdom of heaven are different than the values of this world. And that doesn't surprise us as believers. In fact, we would expect that there would be differences in how God does things versus how the world does things. And what we saw was that Jesus values humility while the world values status and power. Kind of how it ranks people. It looks at things based on what you have or what your occupation may be or what you do. But Jesus looks for those that are humble and contrite in their heart. Jesus values community, interdependence. He made us to be a body of believers who are to work together. Whereas the world often values independence or thinks more about my rights, my needs, you know, my time and my benefit in things. Whereas as believers in the kingdom, we are to be thinking about one another. Jesus also values mercy, whereas the world values retribution. Our God is a forgiving God, whereas the world often wants to get even or pay back or take things into their own hand. The values of the kingdom of heaven are different than the values of this world. But there is a problem that we need to deal with. I mean, how do we live that out in this fallen world? And, you know, the truth is, even Christians sin. I mean, even we can hurt one another or disappoint one another by our actions or words or behaviors. So how do we maintain a sense of community in the church? Well, really, that's what this passage is about. Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us how important it is that we forgive one another. 
And today we're going to be looking at the power of forgiveness. The power of forgiveness. There are three things I want to point out as we walk through the text this morning. Number one, sin is to be forgiven, but it cannot be ignored. Sin must be forgiven, must be dealt with in the body of Christ, but it cannot be ignored. The first step that Jesus talks about here is he actually gives us a a three-step process for how we are to deal with sin in the church. And you have seen these verses before. We've talked about this passage before. But the first step here is private confrontation. He tells us in verse 15 that if your brother sins against you, you are to go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Private confrontation. And the offended person must take the initiative. The one who has been hurt here is directed to take the initiative to go to his brother or sister. Uh, Sometimes the other person may not be aware of what they have done. They may be or they may not be. Sometimes it might be a blind spot in their life or maybe there was a misunderstanding or they said something that was taken wrong and you just need to clear things up and make sure that you understood. But sometimes there is a behavior that needs to be confronted and corrected. That there may be something in our brother or sister's life that really does need to have attention called to it so that they might grow in their relationship with Christ and change. And the Scripture says that if you do that and you go to your brother and he listens to you, you have won your brother over. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed the other side of the coin too, where in the opposite situation, maybe you have sinned against your brother and you know it. What are you to do? Well, here he tells us in the Scripture that when we know we have sinned against a brother or sister, we are to take the initiative and go to them. He said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So really the Scripture takes care of both situations and is stressing how important it is that when we have sinned or when there's a break in your relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, that you need to go and make it right. The Scripture tells us that bitterness and gossip are not a correct response. We're not to go around and kind of build our case with some other people. You know, we're not to kind of get a group on our side and say, did you hear what so-and-so did? And wasn't that awful? And, you know, kind of trash the other person. Not at all. Not at all. We are to go in private to our brother or sister and take care of things first. Bitterness and gossip are not the right response. In Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15 say that we are to make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misuses the, misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. He's addressing something that can happen if we don't deal with sin. If we allow bitterness to build up in our heart or if we go around and we start building up factions and talking to other people, 
It's going to get worse. It's going to be more difficult to root out. It's going to take longer to clear up the mess and more people are going to be defiled by it or affected by it. A couple of weeks ago when we had our work night here at the church, one of the jobs that we had to do was to pull out weeds out of the landscaping rock that's around the church. And one woman who was working near me said, you know, when these weeds get dug in, you know, it's really hard to get them out. Uh, they get into the fabric, their roots sink deep, and you've got to work hard to pull it out. And she said, you know, there's got to be a sermon illustration there. And I said, you know, there really is. I mean, sin is much easier to deal with when it's small, like a small weed, to just be able to pull it out. But when it gets big and it's entrenched, it is very difficult. And so Jesus urges us to deal with things not only directly, but quickly, promptly. Well, the second step here is to bring along one or two witnesses. Now, if, you know, it doesn't resolve it by you going personally and talking things through, well, then you may need to bring along one or two other people to help. Now, when it says witnesses, it doesn't mean that they had to actually see the offense or hear what happened. Uh, they are just there to help you reconcile things with your brother or sister. That is their role. And so you're looking for godly people who could assist you in that situation. People who will keep the confidence, people who have wisdom, understand the Scripture, and who have the skills to help you in resolving the conflict. When I look at this passage of Scripture, though, I think, you know, how it applies to the church, but really these are skills that should be learned and practiced in the home. These are the kinds of things that, as parents, we should be teaching our children. For example, wouldn't it be wonderful if your little four-year-old, when he's done something wrong, would go go to his brother or sister and say, you know, I'm sorry, I took your toy. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I mean, wouldn't that be great if if little kids, you know, began to understand it? And that's not too likely to happen right away, is it? You know, they're gonna they're gonna take something that they wanted, or they're gonna get into a squabble with a sibling, and they're gonna have this argument, and it's gonna take a while for them to learn how to do things right, to say I'm sorry, to say forgive me, to understand and respect the other person. And so what happens? Well, it's kind of like bringing along one or two witnesses. Mom or dad, you're kind of like the the witness here in this situation. You may not have even seen what happened, but you're called in to help resolve the conflict. And so you begin to teach your children how to work things out and encourage them to do this, to go to their brother or sister or to admit when they are wrong. Those are life skills that are to be taught in the home about reconciliation, about forgiveness, and taking ownership for our actions. Well, sometimes mom and dad get into a conflict. Sometimes mom and dad have disagreements and tension. They need to work it out. And if they can't work it out, then they may need a third person to help them in terms of forgiveness or dealing with conflict. And often that's where the church comes in. Or a couple will come and see a pastor or a counselor to work things out. My point in this, though, is that the church is really just a bigger family. 
And the place where we learn these kind of skills, again, should be in our home where we grow up as Christians and teaching that to our children. But we are to practice it, not just in the home, but in the church too. And how wonderful it is when brothers and sisters know the right thing to do and they do it. They understand how important it is to be reconciled. They understand how important it is to forgive or to clear the air that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit in a church. That's our aim. Well, the third step here is if that doesn't work, if you've taken one or two witnesses and a person is still unrepentant or the situation is unresolved, then you are to tell it to the church. And in our church, that would be taking it to the elders or the pastors in the church where you would bring attention to it, bring it to the elders, who then would talk about it and decide the best way to address it. When it says tell it to the church, it doesn't mean immediately this needs to go public to the whole congregation. Sometimes things are dealt with on that board level by the elders and the families or individuals involved. Other times it is a very public offense that needs to be told to the whole church. And that step would be taken. And if that doesn't work, then you are to treat them as you would, it says, a pagan or a tax collector, as you would treat an unbeliever. But there are three overriding concerns that we have in dealing with sin in the church. The first is the restoration of the sinner. That's what this is all about. It's about bringing someone back into fellowship with his brothers and sisters in Christ. The second is the holiness of the church. The reason we're to deal with sin is though that the body of Christ isn't affected by it and the church becomes dysfunctional because of the sin that's going on. And thirdly is the glory of God. God's honor and reputation is at stake. And he cares about what happens in his church. And if a church fails to deal with sin and it lets that kind of fester and it develops a reputation in the community as an unholy place, God's reputation is also affected by that. It too is dishonored in that community. And so these things are indeed very important. Secondly, what we see here is that God has given authority to the local church to handle its affairs. We see that in verses 18 to 20. Where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here he is giving authority to the church. He says, tell it to the church. And then he is referring to the local church here. It's the second time that he has used the word church in Matthew's Gospel, talking about an individual local church in this sense. And uh, he's really transferring things from the synagogue in his day now to this new community that he is creating, the church. In Jesus' day, the Jewish synagogue had the authority and responsibility to teach and to discipline its members, but now that will be a function of the local church. And in verse 18, when he repeats this statement about binding and loosing, he is taking the statement that he had first said to Peter and then to the disciples about the keys to the kingdom and about discipline. Now he is applying that and giving that authority to the church at large. That's pretty amazing to me. 
Uh, that Jesus is saying that each local church has the right to govern its own affairs. And one of those areas has to do with membership. Authority over membership is given to the church. If someone will not listen to the church and they remain unrepentant in their sin, the church has the authority and actually the responsibility to remove them from membership in the church. Sometimes people ask the question about membership, you know, well, where do we see that in Scripture or how do we apply that? Well, it is true that all of the ways that that may be applied are not spelled out in the, in the uh, Scriptures. But the whole idea of membership comes from what Jesus said about the body of Christ, that we are a body and each of us are members of it. The idea of membership comes from 1 Corinthians 12 again, and it started with the, the church that when we come to faith in Christ, we become members of a body of believers in a local community. How that's governed is really up to the church to decide what their membership process is for joining a church. But when people take that step, it really strengthens the commitment both ways. It says that, you know, I am committed to helping this church grow and also I am accountable as a believer to you, to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want you to help me grow in my relationship with God. Membership means that we are willing to use our gifts in service to God and to one another. It means that we're willing to give and support the church financially and we are praying for this body of believers. And so God gives authority then to the local church to govern how it handles its affairs. And what is amazing as you go on in this passage is God is saying He is present in that decision. He is present in that situation. He tells us again, if a person refuses to listen even to the church, you are to treat him as you would an unbeliever, a pagan or a tax collector. That means to put him out of the church as a discipline uh, that is given at this time and to continue to pray for him, continue to love him, reach out to this person, this man or woman, but they are out of the fellowship of the church. And the other thing I wanted to point out here too is that in this passage in verses 19 and 20, which so often we apply to prayer, Jesus says, If two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. He is really applying this decision that is being made to church discipline here, to dealing with this matter of sin. And if you come together, and whether it's as a board or as individuals, you come together and you pray about your brother and sister in Christ and you deal with this matter appropriately, God is present in that decision. Only here, it is Jesus who takes the place of the Father when He says, For where two or three come together in My name, there am I with them. There am I with them. It is another claim by Jesus to be God. You know, sadly, there are many churches that are reluctant to confront sin and to practice discipline in the church. But it must be done for the good of the person and for the health of the church. And in every church, you need to decide which offenses rise to that level where it would be a, a wider discipline. Generally, uh, in the process of discipleship, 
You know, that's where we confront most things, where we pray for one another, help one another to grow, or in those prayer relationships or small groups of disciple-making. That's where we hold one another accountable and deal with those things so that they do not need to rise to a greater level. But on occasion, there are sins that are so severe that they need to be dealt with publicly. It might be sexual immorality over which a person is unrepentant. It might be inappropriate conduct with a minor. It might be theft or extortion or something on that level where a person has gotten involved and if they are unrepentant, that needs to be dealt with in the church. But thirdly, what Jesus says here is that restoring the fallen brother or sister is to be done with love and forgiveness. It's to be done in that kind of spirit that we love one another, we care about one another, and the goal is again restoration. So what we see in verse 21 is that Peter came to Jesus with a question. Let me read this for you, verses 21 to 35. Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Let me stop there. Here's Peter. He recognizes that this is an issue. How are we going to deal with sin among believers? And so he comes to Jesus and he poses this question. How many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Now, I don't know if he's thinking about his literal brother Andrew or if he's thinking wider than that among the disciples but in Jesus day the rabbis answered that question by saying three times three times that's how much you are to forgive somebody if they've sinned against you and and they've done the same thing over and over again and it's three times after that there'd be no forgiveness you just kind of keep them at arm's length So Peter thought he would be generous and he would say, you know, maybe seven times? Is that how much we're to forgive one another? And Jesus replied and he said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some of the translations even suggest Jesus might have been saying 70 times seven. Really what he is getting at is he is saying as often as as he asks. If he is genuine and he is coming and he is asking for forgiveness, you are to forgive your brother. Wow. What Jesus is doing here is he is reversing the curse of Lamech in Genesis 4, 23 and 24. In that passage of Scripture, which is right after where Cain murdered his brother Abel, You see this spirit of revenge and getting even in Lamech, and here's what he said. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. You know, here is this man who's in boasting of his own strength and power, and he's the kind of guy, you know, if somebody hurts him, he's going to get even and take revenge. And he's not just going to do it in terms of getting even, he's going to go over the top. And I'm going to get back at somebody else 77 times. When you look at that, and you compare that with what Jesus says, we're in two different worlds. 
There is a world that says, you know, I hate you, you hurt me, I want to get even, and I'm going to get back to you, and you better look out. And there is a world that says, I want you to forgive your brother. I want you to show to him the same mercy and grace and forgiveness that I have shown to you. Now, isn't it great to know that our God is like that? I was reading through this passage, you know, and I'm thinking in my own mind, I go, you know, have you, have I ever done something more than three times where we've needed to ask forgiveness? I mean, have you ever sinned in a certain area? Maybe not. I'm not talking about the same thing that you did in terms of one offense and you just didn't ask for forgiveness. But for all of us, there may be areas that we struggle with. I mean, have you ever gossiped more than three times? More than seven times? Have you ever caught yourself saying something and then realized, you know what, that was said to me in confidence, I shouldn't have said that, or, you know, that wasn't very nice what I just said about that person. That was kind of critical. Have you ever caught yourself doing that more than three times? Isn't it good to know that God's forgiveness is not limited to that? In the same way, we may struggle with anger or jealousy or lust or greed or gluttony or coveting. All of those things. Far more than just three times or even seven times. We have had to go to God and say, God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me for my attitude? Would you forgive me for what I was just thinking, what was in my heart? And Would you help me to become more and more like you? How good it is to know that Jesus says we are to forgive as often as someone comes and asks with that kind of heart that is genuine and repentant and wants to change. Because the truth of it is that for all of us as we grow in Christ, there are certain areas of our life where we have experienced profound change and things just dropped off and maybe stopped quickly. Maybe it was in your speech. Maybe you had used profanity before you came to know Christ and you came to know the Lord and that stopped. And maybe there were other areas of your life. Sometimes God has miraculously set people free from addictions just, just like that, immediately. But often, often our growth in Christ is step by step, day by day. We move ahead in certain areas. We stumble and fall and need to ask for His forgiveness every single day. How good it is to know that God is a pardoning God. And He told this parable to illustrate that truth. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. I'd like to read it for us starting in verse 23. He said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. I'm going to stop there again. All right, here's the situation. There is this king, and he has a servant who has been working for him. And likely this servant was actually more like a high official because of the amount of money that he was dealing with. 
10,000 talents is a huge sum of money. One talent in that day equaled 6,000 drachmas or denarii. A denarii would be a day's wage for an average worker or laborer. So 6,000 days wages was one talent. And this guy has gotten into debt and he owes him 10,000 talents. 10,000 times that. I mean, this would be a debt that today would be in the millions or billions or one translation said, you know, gajillions, you know. I mean, it's just, it's not meant to be figured out what the dollar amount is. It's like this astronomical debt. It's, it's more than he could ever pay. So whatever, you know, you would imagine in your mind, this debt was greater than anything he could ever pay. And the servant begged for mercy. He begged for more time, which is kind of foolish. He's never going to work this thing off to get out of debt. And what happens instead is that with lavish grace, the king canceled his debt and let him go. With lavish grace. The king didn't have to do this. And the king doesn't choose to just give him more time to work off this debt that's impossible to pay. The king canceled it. He absorbs the cost. He pays the debt. And he lets the man go. That's grace. That's grace. But then what happens? Look at verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. By contrast to what he owed, this would be like a few dollars. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. And he said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. He is threatening this man and his fellow servant fell to his knees, begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back to you. But he refused. And instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. You see this man's heart? I mean, here he is. He has just been shown mercy by the king. And now he comes to someone whom he should forgive and he is unwilling to do it grabs him, chokes him, demands that he pay back what he is and has him thrown into prison. Well, when the master found out, the master called that servant a wicked servant. You see here, um, we'll pick it up again. In verse 32, the master called the servant in and he said, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Here the master was appalled at this man's response to his fellow servant. And he had him thrown into prison until he should pay back all that he owed, which again would be forever. What you get a picture here of is a man who is now in eternal punishment. 
where he is suffering and where he will never be able to repay the debt that he owed because he has rejected the grace of God. What's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't see any incongruity between a God who is lavish in his grace and mercy and forgiveness and a God who can punish sin severely and eternally. Jesus puts both of those things side by side because of the holiness of God and because of the mercy of God. And what does He ask of us? He wants us to forgive as we have been forgiven. The point of this parable is that we have all been forgiven of far more than we will ever forgive. We are like that servant whose debt was so great far more than he could ever pay. And God forgave all of it in Christ. He forgave all of our sins when Jesus died on the cross for us. And that's why the Scripture says to us that we are to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. When someone comes to you, it should be the first thing that comes to our mind is God's mercy and grace in our life. And we should turn and forgive those who have sinned against us. That kind of forgiveness is so powerful that even the world takes notice of it. I want to show you this morning a clip that was on CBS News. It was a story told by Scott Hartman about a woman, a Christian, who chose to forgive someone who had very seriously hurt her and her family. Go ahead and show this clip. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, Thank a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20, and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, 
They don't just live close. They are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience of one. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. Isn't that an amazing story? It's just remarkable what God can do by His grace. And again, even the world takes notice of it when we forgive. Forgiveness isn't easy. It takes God's work in our heart to change us and enable us to forgive like that. I want to share one more story about a man named Michael Wilkins who also went through that transformation by God's grace. A few years ago, he said when the Bumper stickers were popular. There was one that stood out to me. It said, I don't get mad, I get even. It was meant to be humorous, but it had a chilling effect upon me because it described my attitude just a few years prior. He was raised in a family where he had a stepfather who caused him and his family a great deal of pain. He left our family when I was in my early teens, and I carried a deep animosity toward him for years. When I was in Vietnam, my animosity became almost obsessive, and I vowed that the first time I saw him on my return, I would kill him. I would make him pay for what he had done to our family. Well, I returned a few months later, and within a year I had become a Christian. My world began to change, and I put that stepfather out of mind. I had not thought about him much until four years later when he suddenly showed up where my wife and I and our little girl were living. He had tracked us down, and my wife, being the loving person she is, invited him in, and as we sat and talked politely, that vow came to mind. And I then told him, I made a vow in Vietnam that the first time I saw you, I would kill you. Today is that day. And I will never forget the look of terror that came over his face. He just started to sweat and slide down on the couch, and I went on. But I now know that I am no better than you. That God has forgiven me, and if He could forgive a sinner like me, I can forgive you. I will not allow you to hurt my family again, so don't think that this is made out of weakness. Rather, I forgive you because I have been forgiven. And I was probably as shocked as he was. I had not thought about saying those words of forgiveness, but they came easily. I was deeply aware of God's mercy and forgiveness in my life, and I knew my sin better than anyone. I may not have been as abusive as my former stepfather. I may not have hurt people in the same way he had hurt our family, but I had also abused and hurt people in my own self-seeking way. 
And when I came to that awareness, I knew I needed mercy and forgiveness. And in receiving God's grace in my life through the work of the cross, I knew I needed to extend that grace to Him. My vow had been the rash, irresponsible reaction of a deeply hurt, bitter, young sinner. But the grace of God had changed my heart. And I discovered that the key to forgiveness is to stop focusing on what others have done to us and to focus instead on what Jesus has done for us. Are you grateful for God's mercy and grace in your life? And is there anyone that you need to forgive? Do it today. Let's pray. Father, these words can be very, very difficult for us to do. There may have been a time in our life when we were deeply hurt and those wounds are still there. And we bring that to You today, Lord, and we ask for Your grace and for Your healing and for the power to forgive. To forgive as You have forgiven us. I don't know the stories that are here in our church. I don't know all of them. But Father, You do. And I pray that You would extend Your special grace just like You did for the woman in the video we saw that would enable us to forgive so that You might be honored and glorified and that relationships could be healed and that we might grow in our relationship with You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.